Greetings, Trinitarians. I'm so glad that you're here. Today I'll be responding to Mr. Atheist on seven terrible Bible verses that Christians would rather skip, at least according to Mr. Atheist. And he's probably right about that. Uh, we're going to walk through those. Now, Mr. Atheist, if you happen to see this, uh, on my response videos, um, it's always to the content. I'm not responding to you as an individual. In fact, on almost every video that I've ever made, uh, you'll probably notice if you're a new viewer, you'll probably notice that um, I usually talk about what I like about the person because uh, there's usually a lot. You know, we live in the same world. We watch the same films. We, we uh, you know, we, we share the same space. And so it's not surprising that we would have things in common. And as I've been listening through Mr. Atheist content a little bit, trying to find a video that I thought would be helpful to respond to, um, I, 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 I like the guy. He seems like a really likable, nice guy. And um, so this is just aimed at the content. And I hope that if there's any skeptics or atheists out there who are listening, uh, including Mr. Atheist, that uh, you won't find this offensive, or you'll you'll almost certainly disagree, but but that you won't find it to be um, some sort of a personal attack or anything like that. So if there's anything that I say that sounds snarky, I don't mean it like that. Today we're going to be looking at uh, this video, and I think it's good because often I respond to people who are talking about the arguments for God's existence or uh, arguments from evil or the resurrection or something like that. And uh, here what we get is more Bible centric, and so I, I like that. I like it, and. Uh, one thing that we should appreciate that you that are Christians in the audience should appreciate is that when we have atheists who make videos like this, uh, sometimes we don't notice the things. Maybe we already know how we would respond to some of these situations, some of these Bible passages. And so we might not think about it being a major stumbling block to someone else. So uh, someone like Mr. Atheist actually helps us out because he's able to point out some things that were problematic to him, uh, some things that bothered him and things that might bother others. And that 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 clues us in, hey, yeah, that, that could be clarified. So we're going to do that. Now, uh, I want to start by saying that some of what I'm going to give in terms of answers to these uh, statements that he makes about these Bible verses um, you're still not going to feel good about. Like, even if you grant what I say, you're still not going to like it. You're not going to like what the Bible says about that. But understanding that there's a difference between not liking something that the Bible says or not liking something that a Christian believes and uh, the truth about the nature of reality, right? I mean, as I say a lot of times on the show, there's a lot of things that I don't like about the way the world is. It's still the way the world is. There's things that I don't like that are also true. So, um, we need to make a distinction between things that are not palatable to us, particularly in our 21st century Western culture, um, that between that, we don't like it, we don't prefer it, it's not a pleasing or appealing to our senses versus what happens to be the truth about the nature of reality. So having said that, let's go ahead and jump right in and let's let him speak for himself. Mr. Atheist. By many, the Bible is touted as a source of ultimate goodness. Some go so far as to say you can't be a moral person unless you live by the Bible. Well, if you will. Now, before we go any further, he said some people, so he understands that not all Christians say this. Um, Christians that have thought through this, that are thinking Christians, should understand that what we what we want to distinguish between is what is known as moral epistemology and moral ontology. Moral epistemology is you're coming to understand that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And um, you can live, atheists and Christians and Muslims and whoever else can live moral lives. We can uh, be good people from a human perspective, all right, understanding that we're all sinners. Uh, you, you can be a good person from a human perspective. That's, that's not where a Christian 
Christian should go with those things. Um, the, you could have never seen the Bible and still know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and you could live accordingly uh, because it's in your conscience. It's seared on your heart. But um, what we want to say, and what I would say, and we'll get back to this toward the end of the video, is you have no ontological grounding. You have no ultimate foundation for uh, goodness, for morality, if there is no God. And we'll come back to that at the end and maybe unpack that a little bit more. We'll see how time, uh, time goes will please allow me to say au contraire. And as a counter-argument, I would like to present seven rather uncomfortable Bible verses that I once upon a time believed in that I think most Christians would rather just skip over. I'm Mr. Atheist, let's do this. Now, in making this list, there are hundreds of selections I could have gone with. So these are seven that stuck out, and most of them are ones that bothered me when I was a believer. So while these seven are uncomfortable, I won't claim they are the seven most uncomfortable. And if there are any that you think should be listed in the, say, top seven most uncomfortable verses, worst, most terrible verses in the Bible, I would love to read your submissions in the comments. Let us start with the first one, and we are going to begin today in Deuteronomy. Already off the bat, I can hear the people on the other side of the screen going, oh, but wait, that's Old Testament. Don't worry, the New Testament verses are coming. They're no better. In Deuteronomy 25, 11, and this is out of the King James Version, though I assure you there is consistency to the messages across versions, but this <clears throat> is Deuteronomy 25, verse 11. When men strive together one with another, talking about fighting, and the wife of the one draweth near for to deliver her husband out of the hand of him that smiteth him, and putteth forth her hand, and taketh him by the secrets, that means the balls, then thou shalt cut off her hand, thine eye shall not pity her. Remember, if somebody is beating your husband to death, the important thing to make sure as you are in this fight or flight mode and you are running to assist is that you just make sure you don't grab the guy by the grapes. Because in this scenario of violence, that would be the true crime, worthy of losing a hand over. But then this is Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy has something of an obsession, really, with what is between a person's legs and specifically. Okay, we'll, we'll get back to the rest of what he's going to say here in just a few minutes because it kind of goes into another criticism. Let me go ahead and read to you what it is that um, uh, Paul Copan has to say about this. You know, I, atheists have often been told by Christians that they are that they should read Paul Copan and see what he has to say, and many of them have, but not all of them. And even if I if I were an atheist and I were making a video like this. I would, I would feel like I should at least say, I know you're going to say Paul Copan. Here's what Paul Copan says. Here's my response to it. So um, since many of you may never read it, I'm just going to read to you the portion where uh, Paul Copan speaks about this. I'm going to read specifically through uh, that portion on this subject that he's discussing. And I'm going to read all of it. Uh, so just hang with me. But here's what Copan says um, on page 121 of Is God a Moral Monster in my copy. It says, quote, A more plausible interpretation of this passage is the punishment of depilation. Punishment of depilation. You shall shave the hair of her groin, not mutilation. The word commonly translated hand, cough, can refer to the palm of a hand or some rounded concave object like a dish, bowl, or spoon, or even the arc of a foot. The common used word for hand, yod, isn't used here. It would be strange to cut off the palm of a hand. 
Furthermore, in certain places in the Old Testament, the word cough is clearly used for the pelvic area, either the concave hip socket or the curve of the woman's groin. I arose to open for my lover and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the lock, Song of Songs 5.5 in the NIV. This language alludes back to the locked garden in chapter 4, verse 12. You are a locked garden, my sister, my bride. You are an enclosed spring, a sealed up fountain. That's from the New English translation. Scholars generally agree that the garden language is a metaphor for a woman's sexual organs and is being locked implies her purity or virginity. Also in the Deuteronomy 25 text, there is no indication of physical harm to the man as some commentators commonly assume. For those who assume a literal hand-for-hand punishment, remember that the man's hand hasn't been injured or cut off. If so, then the idea of cutting off her hand would make slightly more sense. In addition, shaving hair, including pubic hair, as a humiliating punishment was practiced in Babylon and Sumer. See also 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 4 through 5 and Isaiah 7, 20. This isn't mutilation for mutilation, but humiliation for humiliation. In addition, the specific Hebrew call verb in Deuteronomy 25, 12 has a milder connotation than the stronger intensified PL verb from meaning cut off or physically sever. Whenever it appears in the milder form, it means clip, cut, or shave the hair. There's just no linguistic reason to translate the weaker verb from shave as a stronger form, amputation. In this particular case, we're talking about the open concave region of the groin and thus a shaving of pubic hair. In short, the woman's punishment is public humiliation for public humiliation, uh, publicly humiliating the man, something still very severe and for which no mercy should be shown. From a textual point of view, the superior view is clearly the shaving view, not the mutilation view. So what we understand here is that if we take into account the actual original languages in our discussion and ancient Near Eastern practices uh, like we had with Babylon and Sumer here, then we would come away with uh, an understanding that is more common to the culture, more common to the language, and not nearly as severe as cutting off someone's hand. So um, I think that's important. Now, do I still like that? Is it odd? Yeah, it's still odd, the practice that is being put forward here. That's that's weird. I get it. Uh, but we're talking about a different culture and a different time and place. The point is mutilation is not in view. Uh, again, uh, Paul Copan says, now, if it were the case, in other words, if it were the case that it means cut off the hand, it would be the only biblical instance of punishment by mutilation. Um, so uh, all that being said, uh, I think if you put the proper context on this, do some good exegesis, you don't come away with the understanding that Mr. Atheist has come away with. Anyway, Deuteronomy 23, starting off the chapter on verse 1, and these are the rules about people who can enter into the church or the synagogues. He that is wounded in the stones or hap- Okay, hold up. Is this about people entering into churches and synagogues in Deuteronomy 23.1? No, it is not. This is about people who are going to engage in tabernacle and later temple worship. Um, that's a little bit different. The tabernacle was this tent that was uh, the instructions for building this thing was all given to Moses. They had the tabernacle throughout the wilderness wanderings, and then they built the temple. Ultimately, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. And what was going on in the tabernacle and in the temple was this is supposed to represent the actual uh, presence of God. And if you can imagine, this was a very, most of what's going on here is ceremonial. So if you're talking about well, let's go ahead and finish what he says before I go into what that was all like. 
hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. This sort of illustrating something we've talked about a lot on this channel, that the things that the Lord seems to think a lot about, it's usually very shallow thinking. And, and mind you, in these verses of restrictions, they also restrict things like handicapped people. This is, in fact, the ultimate book of inequality and immorality. But what... Okay, now here's the thing with this. This is talking about, again, not churches, not synagogues. Uh, we're talking about temple and tabernacle worship, which is very different. And most of what's going on here is ceremonial. So if you can imagine being out in the wilderness and you've got this tent that represents the presence of God in the middle of your camp. And uh, on the outside, it looks like a tent, an extravagant tent nonetheless, but a tent. And you're looking out at this desert landscape. You're look. You're doing very common things. You're going through common daily activities uh, of the people of your day. Nothing too out of the ordinary. And then when you go into the tabernacle, you are in an otherworldly experience. If you go back and read what it says about the interior of the tabernacle, what you find is there was this reflective metal plating on the sides of this tabernacle, so that when you're in, you step out of this desert landscape and into this tabernacle, and suddenly you're in an infinity mirror, uh, like a golden infinity mirror with all this ornate stuff around, and this is the presence of God. And this was the point, actually, is you're stepping out of this fallen world with uh, with disease and sickness and problems and infirmities and, and, and the way things should not be and did not have to be, and you're stepping into an area that represents symbolically and ceremonially the presence of God. This means that symbolically and ceremonially, this represents what it will be like in heaven, what it was like in the garden. This is the way things are in the world without uh, what sin has has done to the world. And so um, when, when we talk about certain kinds of people with certain kinds of backgrounds or certain kinds of infirmities, not being allowed to go and engage in the direct temple worship in, in the tabernacle, that's for ceremonial and symbolic purposes to teach a lesson about what it's going to be like. Now, if a person can't, if, if a man, say, is infertile, that's, that's a, that, that could be a horrible situation, particularly for a man who wants to have children. I have two children. I can't imagine the anguish that some men and certainly women go through uh, who have that situation. And I get it. And this goes for all kinds of medical illnesses. And you could learn things from that. That's true. You could, you could, your character could develop because of infirmities that take place in your life. And that infirmity in some way can become a part of your identity that is encouraging to you and encouraging to others and makes people stronger from admiring you going through that sort of a thing. And so that, that's all, that's all fine. That's all good. But the reason that the tabernacle worship would not involve such people, actually it did involve them. Uh, they played a role too. They played a role by not uh, engaging in that way. And, they, and it was an understanding that it doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that they're not believers in the one true God. It doesn't mean that they have some personal sin in their life that needs to be dealt with. It doesn't mean that God values them any less. It means that in the tabernacle worship, ceremonially, what we're doing here is we're picturing what it's going to be like one day. And even though going through physical handicaps and physical inabilities, you know, like if you can't, uh, if, you're, if a man is infertile or something, or a woman, uh, that that can become a part of your identity that's very important to who you are. It is still an example of the body not functioning the way the body was designed to function. And the tabernacle worship was to picture things as they're meant to be. So it doesn't say anything about the person. It's not about equality. It's not about inequality. That's not what's going on here. But you have to understand what tabernacle worship and later temple worship was all about. Now, in the church, 
And yeah, absolutely. In the church today, people, every kind of person with every kind of background, with any kind of infirmity can come into the church and be a part of that assembly. But that's very different. You know, often we think about the temple as being uh, the same thing as the church. The temple is just like the Old Testament version of the church. Well, I understand why people come away with that understanding. But the fact of the matter is the temple was uh, basically a slaughterhouse for, uh, you know, animal sacrifices to Yahweh. The church today under the new covenant is a quite a different internal experience, right? In fact, it's not even an, inter it's not like the building is the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the church, the church is the people, right? So understanding this contextually, you just don't have this problem that Mr. Atheist seems to have. What about when Jesus throws the ring into Mount Doom? Okay, you're right, that was pretty dope. Matthew 6, here we are in the New Testament. Verse 5, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Now, I didn't include this one because it is on the terrible end of the verses spectrum, but on the uncomfortable, something that I think a lot of Christians would prefer to skip over. The religion I was raised with and the church I went to, there was public prayer. Something of a contest, it seemed like, at times, to see who could go the longest. And this, I admit, is a verse I very much like to post in reply to people who write out, like on Facebook and Twitter and such, write prayers out and will end, like, in Jesus' name, amen, where they are at the very peak uh, uh, publicly praying, whereas here in Matthew it actually says, you should be doing this in quiet. Your prayers and such should be personal. This isn't something that you're supposed to be. It's not even go into your house or go into your room all the way into the closet. Then you should finish praying and come out of the closet. Not unlike I did. First Timothy. Okay, um, so here's the thing. I don't know why that would be a problem for uh, most Christians, but yeah, the Christians that want to make a big showy ordeal of prayer and, you know, pray publicly like that. Yeah, I, I get it. Uh, I believe the Bible. I'm, I'm with you. We shouldn't have arrogance or pride in our prayers. Um, we should pray privately in a prayer closet like that. Now, even among Jesus and the disciples, there was some, you know, Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, right? He gives them uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer. So there is, there is some, you know, element of small community uh, corporate prayer like that. But the idea of the passage, I agree with them completely. People shouldn't be getting up trying to have a competition about who can pray the best. Or, you know, I, I, you don't have to worry about that if you're, if, you're, if you're actually talking to God anyway. You talk to God, you talk to God privately, and you can pray um, a, a much more normal, practical prayer without the these and thous and stuff. So um, I don't know why that one would be uncomfortable for Christians unless a particular Christian was the kind of Christian that was into the those big showy ordeals, right? The chapter two, verse 11. This one straddles both the uncomfortable and the terrible. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Now, this across the different versions actually does have a little bit of a different message. 
all terrible. So there's still the consistency that, that women shouldn't speak, they don't have authority, uh, that, that Adam came first and then Eve, Adam was the one who sinned and transgressed, and so women are being extra punished. When it comes to the childbearing, the differences in versions will talk about basically the suffering, how painful childbearing being is, sort of to be the women's atonement, where this version seems to be more saying you will have the gift of childbearing as long as you are faithful, which is another terrible, terrible message to put out there because it causes people to blame themselves for not being able to have children and for people who can't have children oftentimes to be in incredible denial about that. And I've seen that firsthand time and time again. What a Okay, uh, so let's, there's two things here. There's one, the issue about what does it mean to be saved through childbearing? And uh, then what about women, you know, uh, keeping silent, not teaching? Uh, first of all, we're talking about in the church. Now we're in the New Testament, right? We got to keep context uh, is important here. Um, Paul's writing to Timothy about these ecclesiological matters. And when it comes to women uh, in the church, there's a particular cultural uh, thing that needs to be kept in mind here. Now, first of all, uh, there are people who don't hold the position I do in the church. They, I am what you call a soft complementarian um, in, in the church. And uh, now that, that does not, for me, that does not extend to anything outside of the church. And I don't really like have an ax to grind about it within the church. I just want to do what the Bible says. I just, I believe the Bible's true for apologetic reasons that I discussed in other videos. And so I, I want to do what the Bible says. I want to be faithful to the Bible. I, I, it's fine with me if a woman does everything in a church that a man does, if that's what the Bible allows for. I don't have a problem with a woman being a pastor if the Bible allows for that. I actually don't have a problem with women uh, doing almost everything that a man does in church. The only issue where I still can't get past what I think scripture teaches is that when it comes to the role of elder, I, I don't think that the Bible allows for a woman to serve in the role of elder. Um, now, here's the thing. That may sound horrible to you, uh, but a complementarian doesn't say men and women have different values. A complementarian says men and women are of equal value but have differing roles in the church. Um, and so uh, the, the idea that, that we would serve complementary but differing roles, um, I, I don't know why that's a problem except in a culture today where one of the highest virtues is saying that um, men and women are no different in any respect and in responsibilities or any other way, which to me is simply a denial of reality. I mean, physiologically, we serve different roles. I, I just don't understand why this is that big of a deal, except for people who want to say that our culture today and the way we do things in our culture today is, is got to be the most moral, uh, the highest value way of doing things. Um, it's not because women are unintelligent. It's not, again, if it were up to me, I, I wouldn't have a dog in this fight. I don't care, but I want to do what the Bible teaches here. Now, it doesn't mean that a woman can't ever teach at all. Um, we're talking about specifics here because, after all, the Bible elsewhere tells us that uh, the older women are to teach the younger women, right? So uh, so there's, there's teaching that goes on that women are engaged in. But as I understand things, it's a particular role of the woman uh, in, in that respect in the church that we're talking about. Now, um, you may not like that. And hey, guess what? I get it. 
but there are a lot of Christians who actually don't see it the way I do. I've got a friend named Nick Quint who's got a whole podcast devoted to this that he and his wife do together. He's a very academic um, uh, graduate, I think, from Fuller Seminary, and has has already traditional a traditionally published book that is that he's um, under contract for. Um, my co-host, Dr. Jonathan Pritchett, who you see on here with me sometimes, he's an egalitarian as well on this issue. He's not where I am. And so there are a lot of Christians today who think that, yeah, women can do, are allowed to do everything a man is allowed to do in church, biblically speaking. Um, one of the reasons for that, and here's where we get to the second issue in, in the uh, list here where we're talking about um, uh, being saved through childbirth, is I've actually been to Ephesus and there was th- there is this cult of uh, Artemis worship. And uh, under that uh, religion, Artemis was the one you should hope will help you to survive through childbirth. And um, what uh, Paul is telling Timothy here is the people in your church should understand they shouldn't look to uh, Artemis for that. They should look to God for that. They should look to Jesus for that to get them through childbirth. And it's not a guarantee that they always will get through, but it's not. And granted, there are people who disagree about the interpretation of this passage. But if you understand the cultural and historical and sociological background of this, you understand that Paul is countering Artemis worship here. And so the idea is that you shouldn't be putting your hope in Artemis. You should be putting your hope in God. So um, when you understand all of that, then his objections here, I think, dissolve. A moral book this is, is it not? Especially at this yes. one. Let's jump back to the Old Testament. Let's go check out the Psalms. You know the Psalms, these these lovely, it's just poetry filled with God's love and desire for humankind and, and a wonderful passage such as this. Chapter 137, we'll start with verse 7. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall be he that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Uh, If you aren't following, that's some passive aggressiveness there. Happy shall be he that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. This verse having been used historically to justify hatred and violence toward people who don't believe, as God in the Bible was commanding to believe, because not everyone believed in the Bible. They had their own gods and they had their own beliefs. And and then this wonderful book comes along and commands people in multiple occasions, not just here, to be very violent and destructive and to harm each other and to kill and to, and to commit genocide. But this Bible wouldn't condemn people who are doing things in the privacy of their own home. That- okay, he's moving to another topic now. So uh, yeah, this is really great because what's going on here is you got to understand that the children of Israel have been taken into captivity in Babylon. Uh, all these horrible things that are mentioned there are things that had happened to them. Those are things that had happened to them when they were taken into captivity. And so now they've been taken by these people. They've gone 600 miles, I think it is, away from their home. And now they're being told... Um, uh, sing a song for us, right? You children of Israel, uh, you, you from Zion, you're, you're supposed to be the musical people, right? You're the people, David was your king, you're, you're those people. So, so sing for us one of these beautiful songs so that we can hear this incredible music. And, and these people don't feel like singing. And, uh, but in the midst of that, they decide to turn it around. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to understand about this. First of all, this is not prescriptive. This is not saying that what's being mentioned here in this passage is what people are supposed to do, i.e., you're supposed to uh, dash children's heads against the stones. What it's giving you is 
a song that the children of Israel sang under those circumstances, right, where they were broken. This is the wonderful thing about the Psalms. He's, it's not always, you know, I don't know what kind of church he went to where he got this impression uh, that, you know, that, you're, that, that all the Psalms are all happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. That is not at all what it is. The great thing about Psalms, the realistic thing, is that you actually do get real human heart and soul in the midst of struggle, in the midst of difficulty. You get something real and gritty that people today who are going through suffering can latch onto and say, yeah, I feel that way. I get that. I understand that. So let's go ahead and here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to play for you. Uh, this is my pastor at the church that I go to in uh, Evansville, Indiana. And uh, I don't think this is squared up with the page exactly right, but that's okay. And uh, he's going to he's gonna talk a little bit about this passage, and then I'm going to play one of our campus pastors. This will just take a few seconds, so just hold with me. Don't go anywhere. But here's my pastor, Brett Nicholson, uh, at One Life Church in, in uh, Evansville, Indiana. Here, here's him talking about this. It was the, the setting, rather— was about the, the Hebrew people had been attacked by the Babylonians. They arguably had, many of them had watched their city burn, their homes burn. Some of them watched their infant children be murdered right in front of their eyes, and then they were carried off 600 miles to another country, and they lived dominated by another culture and other people, essentially enslaved. And they're, and they're, and they're, the people that were in charge, the Babylonians would say to them, and they talk about this in the song, they would say to them, you know, sing one of the songs. We've heard your songs were really, really good. You know, sing one of the songs of Zion. Sing one of those psalms that we've heard so much about. And they talk about in the psalm how it was so difficult to sing. But here's the beauty of that. And what he pointed out was they used the psalm to talk about the fact that it was hard to sing the psalm. And what we've said over and over and over again, and, by review, and, and, I, and, and I keep saying this because I am absolutely convinced the Psalms teach us that if you really want to have a meaningful, deep, rich worship experience and life experience with God, if you want to walk with him in a way that's going to be, it's really connecting, you have to learn to start where you are. And your worship becomes a turning toward God from any place. That's how the, the Hebrews dealt with this tragedy that none of us have ever experienced anything like that. All right, so there he's setting it up, and here's one of our campus pastors, um, Matt Breivogel, I think is his name, and here's, here's him giving a little more. Uh, and a couple things, like the critics of the Bible and people who are real skeptical about Christianity, I've heard them take this psalm and use it to kind of bash God. Like, why would that be in there? Why would he let that be said? Is that what he wants people to do, to bash children against the rocks? Like, and what they do is they'll take that last verse and just— critique that in a really big way and apply that to the whole Bible. Right. You can't do that because first and foremost, this is a psalm. This is poetry. You can't really take it as literally as you do other things like uh, God giving the laws or these narratives um, that happened in history with all these uh, historical details. This is um, imagery and feeling and poetry, and, it's, and it can be beautiful. So it's, it's that. And secondly, this is a real person writing in real time under real circumstances. So yeah, that's what you're getting. You're getting their gut, honest truth. And there's a lot to learn from that as well. Okay, so there you get it. Um, and uh, actually, I want to play here and see if he gives this quote. 
And um, here's a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Yeah. He's a famous preacher from the 1800s in England. He said this about that. He said, let those who find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, their children slain, they may not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. And he kind of gets it. He's like, do you realize what these people have been through? And so what we're going to do is we're going to reread verse 1 here, and that just sets us up. Okay, so, so I'm actually going to put the link to both of these messages, and you need to—I really think you should check them out. And if you're a skeptic out there who says, man, I, I would actually like to listen to some— uh, some good preaching. I recommend my pastor to you. There's a lot of good preachers out there, but but our church, uh, we dice it up. It's not always the same preacher, but it's usually Brett Nicholson, and he actually includes a lot of apologetic material, and he understands that there are skeptics and atheists who are listening to him, and uh, I, th- I think it'd be powerful to you. So I- I'm going to put those links in the description. I want you to check those out. But the idea is here, you have these people who've been taken into captivity. Now this this is, imagine this, put yourself there, and they're now sitting here of being told to sing one of these songs of Zion. They don't feel like singing. So like Brett said, they put that in the song. But then they, they basically are singing. And if these, uh, if these people didn't know the language, the Hebrew, right? Then the Hebrews are sitting here, you know, these Israelites are sitting here singing through. Uh, this is what we want Yahweh to do to you. This is what we, is gonna, you're, you're, you're going to be destroyed in this way. Um, and they're sitting there kind of bobbing their heads. Yeah, I mean, this is a good song, right? This is pretty good. I got I to gotta put this on my, uh, on my iPhone or something, right? I put this in my iTunes account, right? But they don't realize perhaps what's being said right there in front of them. So the thing about this is uh, there are a lot of people that think if something is in the Bible at all, then it means this is what God wants. What you got to understand is there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible. There's narrative in the Bible. It's just telling you what happened. There's Psalms that's expressing to you what's on someone's heart. Um, and, and what's powerful about this is a, a passage like this is that people can relate people who are in the midst of struggles. And this is a human thing. God understands this. And so it's not, this is why exegesis and proper context is important because otherwise you are going to come away with uh, just what I think the kind of understanding that Mr. Atheist has come away with here, which is understandable. I mean, I get it, but understand, we have the words of Satan in the Bible. So uh, not everything that's in the Bible is something that you're supposed to do or something that you're supposed to um, revere. Uh, Sometimes the Bible is just telling you what happened or it's expressing real struggles that are going on. Uh, people get mad at God in the Bible. People, I, th- this, is, this is a real book. This is what I want atheists to understand is there is a realistic aspect to this. And like he said, he was never told this. He said growing up, he was just told that the Psalms was just all love and joy and you know all that kind of thing. Listen, man, if, if you haven't read it, re- read through this stuff and tell me it does not mirror your experience in life it, from the perspective of someone who might believe in God. You would, you, would, you would see how you would feel these things. All of the criticisms, or at least many of the criticisms that atheists and skeptics bring against the faith, Christians already thought of it. <laughs> or God's people in the Old Testament already thought of it and expressed it and illustrated it, um, gave an impression of it. So let's, uh, I think that takes care of that, but let's, let's just, but remember, this is not prescriptive. What they're saying they're feeling doesn't mean this is what you should do or anything like that, right? And secondly, these are people who are in the midst of a very difficult situation expressing what's on their hearts. All right, let's, let's keep going now. That harms no one else, right? Oh, what? Back to the New Testament? Back to Romans? 
Romans chapter 1, verse 26, For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. I reckon that's about blowies and anal. But then verse 27, And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. So a New Testament condemnation of homosexuality, which is then often linked with many of the other Old Testament designations as people try to decide what should be done, what the appropriate action should be, and calling it things like vile and against nature, and suggesting that these people are worthy of retribution for merely the way they are. Once again, you don't actually have to go to the Old Testament to find those terrible themes that are admittedly, frequently a part of the Old Testament. For example, some of us like to point out how in Leviticus it talks about being your slave. And oh, Okay, wait, wait, wait. He's going on to something else now. So um, I, I want to approach this with a real level of sobriety and um, um, as much as I can as a person who doesn't have those kinds of, of desires, uh, a level of understanding. Uh, my best friend growing up uh, in high school it, it came out of the closet and um, tried to reconcile that with his faith. And he did what a lot of Christians do, liberal Christians. He tried to say, hey, you know, maybe um, maybe the Bible is okay with this. And he tried to find ways to make it work and it wasn't. And he said, okay, maybe you can just kind of, you know, cut out the parts of the Bible, take what you like, you know, um, leave the rest. And, and then he realized that wasn't, that didn't work really ultimately. And so finally he had to decide between a biblical, uh, living a biblical lifestyle that is biblically permissible and living, uh, you know, a, a gay lifestyle. And ultimately he decided uh, to, to live the gay lifestyle. That led to a degradation in his faith and however you want to frame that up um, soteriologically or whatever, he ended up, uh, now he's an atheist. And, uh, and, and one of the reasons I'm in apologetics today is because early on he was very antagonistic. And not very, but he was antagonistic to my faith. And um, uh, I, I was rattled, not in sense of doubt, but rattled in that I wanted something to say to him. Uh, I didn't know what to say. I wanted to know how to give an answer, and I didn't know how to give an answer. And so everything I am in apologetics really since that time has been in an effort to reach him. And so uh, when I come to this, I understand. I, 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 you know, a lot of the issues that are discussed with this, like are people born that way or not born that way, I, I, it's irrelevant to me. We live in a world where, where things like this can happen, you know. Um, what I want to impress here without getting into that whole can of worms is one thing is um, Christians who decide to live biblically faithful in spite of such desires. And I know this is going to be crazy controversial, uh, but, but people that decide that they're going to live a biblically faithful life in spite of these kinds of attractions, um, I think we ought to celebrate those people in the church. I think that we ought to gather around them and champion them and, uh, and, and all that. Um, secondly, uh, I, I want to say that what the reason, I think, and this kind of ties together several things that have been said here, symbolism, ceremony, these kind of things are very, very important uh, to, to Christianity and to Judaism. And so um, there is a way according to Christianity and, and Judaism, uh, the Old and the New Testament, there's a way that things ought to be. And the way things are in the world right now is not as they ought to be. 
right? And so um, that's why in the tabernacle and in the temple worship, things needed to, as best they could, look the way they ought to be. Because one day God's going to resurrect and remake the work and things, uh, the world, and things will be as they ultimately ought to be. Um, now, we don't say that a person who is experiencing same-sex attraction is in sin for experiencing same-sex attraction. But we think that certain behaviors, we think the Bible teaches that certain behaviors are sinful. And so when we look at this symbolism and this ceremony that is important to the Old and the New Testament, to, to, to what God wants, um, here's a great example. In the Old Testament, there's a really weird law. It's my favorite law in the Old Testament just for the weirdness, the weird factor. It says you shouldn't, you shouldn't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Now think about that. You shouldn't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. It's one of those laws. It's like, okay, um, I wouldn't have thought to do that if you hadn't just said it, right? Uh, but but it symbolizes a lot of what's going on here. Why wouldn't you boil a baby goat in its mother's milk? Because that is the, the very idea that the milk that is supposed to give life to a baby goat, and then it becomes the instrument of death to that baby goat, that whole setup is against nature. It's an inversion of the way that things are supposed to be. So the law is not always just stuff that Yahweh is throwing out there arbitrarily to try to get you to act a, a certain way. It's never that. And it's not, it's not necessarily even just for you know, civic uh, pragmatics. It's to point to something higher. He said a while ago that Yahweh seems interested in these shallow things. No, no, no. It could not be deeper what he's interested in. He's interested in things that symbolize what is right about creation, the way things are going to be one day, the way things were in the garden. That's what these symbols and these ceremonial laws point to. So uh, when we come to something like homosexuality, uh, I, I can't imagine how this sounds. And, and trust me, I, I know that uh, a lot of times I don't think atheists realize that people like me, I live in the same world you do. I see the same movies you see. I hear the same music you listen to. I, I get it. I, I get that we sound really bigoted for stuff like this. Um, and it's not like I have an ax to grind about this. I, I just believe the Bible for the reasons that I uh, give in other videos. I, the good reason to believe God exists, good reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, good reason to believe that the Bible teaches is true. So I, I believe this stuff. Um, but the, the reason that it's phrased the way it is in Romans chapter 1 that you just read is because what's going on there is um, the way that creation was set up initially is that you'd have one man and one woman, and that is pointed to again and again and again throughout Scripture. And so the idea is that that is the natural order of things, and it symbolizes something. What does it symbolize? The relationship between Christ and the church, the body of believers. And so as a result of that, uh, that symbol is very important. There's something to that. And so it's wrong to mess up that symbol. That makes sense of the tabernacle issues you had problems with earlier. It makes sense of, um, uh, of the uh, uh, issue with, uh, with this, with the homosexuality thing. There was something else. I, I don't know what it was. But, but, I, but trust me, I get how it sounds. I, I, I don't like that this is a thing. That, that, uh, that, yeah, I don't like that there's this rub between worldviews on this issue. Because I recognize that though I can't know what you're going through, 
this is an extremely important thing, a personal thing, a thing that has to do with identity, and I want you to know that I get that. But in terms of an answer, I think there's an answer there in that what what we're pointing to here is is the way that ultimately um, God created the world and, and trying to symbolize that and point to that because that's what's coming again one day. Um, if, if you believe. All right. So let's let's keep going here. Often are met with the well, except for that. That's the Old Testament, which once again, still your God that was stoked about this. Slavery is once again talked about in First Peter chapter two, verse 18 servants. And here servants does mean slave. Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Other virgins use phrase. Okay, well, let's let him finish. This is such as cruel. Talking about subjugation for slaves, and again, in that earlier voice, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. That is the path it wishes for slaves and for women. Okay, so so we've already talked about the women thing. Here's the thing. So if you look at uh, slavery, we did two episodes on slavery. I'll link those in the description as well, if I remember. Um, but we went through that. I don't believe that... Uh, slavery is endorsed, as people often say. I I get how they see that there. Again, I recommend Paul Copan's work on this. Uh, And I agree with him that what we don't have in Israel, at least not what's allowed, is is what we would call slavery, even though it's often translated that um, in in modern translations. But we have Israelite servanthood. And I know that raises a whole bunch of other questions. But again, it means you have to understand ancient Near Eastern practices. You have to understand how language was used. You have to understand what's going on and comparing scripture with scripture. And so I would just encourage you to go check out those two previous episodes on slavery. It's slavery part one and slavery part two um, on this channel. And you'll find the answers to those questions. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with them or like them. But those answers are there. Now, as for the New Testament thing that here, what's going on here um, is you've got to, this is not an endorsement of slavery, right? Um, What's going on here is the Christian life is one where the Christian can expect to be defrauded in this world. We are to be people who um, can expect that people are going to walk all over us. We can expect that we're going to be done wrong. And the point is to illustrate Christ in all of that, to be imitators of Christ, to represent Christ in those stations in life. Um, I've often said uh, that if, um, and, and I hope I would be able to do this, but um, just got a new TV, by the way, just got a new TV uh, this past weekend. Now, um, I love it. That TV is awesome. I can't wait to get home so I can watch that TV. All right. Uh, but I was explaining this to my daughter one day and she just was, she just, it blew her mind because it's so counter to the way we as individualistic Westerners think about us and our rights and all these kind of things. But if someone broke into my house, uh, let's say my family's not there. It's just me that's there. Someone breaks into my house and they want to steal my brand new TV that I love so much. <clears throat> I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to criticize someone who doesn't see it this way, but I think the way I should maybe react there is to actually help them carry the TV out to their car and and try to be a representation of Christ while I'm doing that. Um, the, The reason for that is I think there's biblical basis for that that we could get into. But secondly, we live a life where we should expect to be defrauded. And when that happens, we represent Christ in the midst of it so that people can see there really is something different about them. And then we verbally convey the gospel. If you were a slave in the New Testament already, I mean, the Bible says you can be free, be free. But the thing about it is, if, if you're a slave and, uh, and you're, under, you're in this sort of a situation, uh, 
that's not the best case scenario, and it's not an endorsement of slavery. But what it is is in that station in life, remember, like Christ, you're going to be defrauded in this life. And in that station, represent Christ. Be, be a good Christian. Maybe that person will be saved as a result of, of you representing in that way. So um, there you go. Oh, and for women, in, in this case, it was these were honor-shame societies. And so if you're not familiar with honor-shame societies, uh, per, perhaps some Asian countries would be modern examples of honor-shame societies and, and uh, things like that. As a result, uh, a, a woman culturally back then is in a situation where uh, it would be dishonorable to others for her to speak out against her husband. So in a situation where you have a woman who's a Christian and her husband might not be, then this woman should live the Christian life in front of him that perhaps she could reach him for Christ through living the Christian life in an obvious way that's different, that she could see him come to Christ. So these are all important things. to understand. I hope one theme you're getting throughout this video is that you have to understand the context. You have to understand the practices of peoples that lived during these times. And it's not that if you understood those, it's just okay that these things are also awful. It's no, if you understand these things, then some of them aren't like you're describing them, right? So let's keep, keep going here. Now, I want to be clear. I am by no means saying any Christian person must come to these verses and live by them now because it's in their book. I think it is one of the great successes of humanity that you've learned to cherry pick. It can be very frustrating, especially in debate, but as far as when you pick your morality, the way you're going to act and treat each other, it's extremely encouraging that Christians have given up biblical morality as it is written for a moral way of thinking that is concluded from thoughtfulness, from demonstration, and from really figuring out what is best for all people. And we're not perfect, by no means. We are far from perfect. But at the end of the day, what I'm saying is, it's encouraging that people who were gonna live by the biblical moral word as it is written have essentially given that up for something more like secular humanism. When people say, I might not believe in God, but I live as though I do, and I look to these verses, I dare say you are incorrect because I live with the ability to see where your God which I dare say I do not believe in, but where the words attributed to your God, I possess the ability to see and evaluate when your God was wrong. And boy, was this God wrong time and time again. So often one might be tempted to think, Maybe he just never existed in the first place. So on the contrary, I say perhaps the reason why this is the greatest time to be alive is more than ever religious people are living as though there is no God. Okay, <clears throat> let's talk about some of this. So uh, first of all, he says, I'm actually capable of recognizing where your God is wrong. I get what you're saying here, Mr. Atheist, but the thing about it is what... This presumes that you have some foundation for morality. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying here, okay? Uh, Christopher Hitchens often thought that the Christian was saying, um, you can't live a moral life unless you're a Christian or unless you have a Bible or unless you believe the Bible or whatever thing. That, and there may have been some Christians that said that to him, but I showed in the video response to Hitchens that again and again, people would clarify to him, no, 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 that's not what we're saying. You're talking about moral epistemology, that we can discover and recognize 
that certain things are right and wrong, that we have a conscience, that we can see that, that we can put all that together. Uh, and you can do that without the Bible. That's right. You can do that um, without believing in God. That's all true. What you what you can't have is a foundation for object objectively moral right and wrong things, like objective morality. You have subjective morality. It's a matter of opinion what's right and wrong. Um, the only way you get to objective morality, so subjective morality, subjective things we can think of as matters of opinion, whereas objective things we think of as matters of fact. So um, if, if, if uh, you know, objectively two plus two equals four, that's it. Uh, if we said two plus two equals seven, is that a matter of opinion? Well, it may be, but your opinion is incorrect, right? <laughs> it just is the case. And even if everyone on planet Earth thought that two plus two equals seven, they'd just all be wrong and two plus two would still equal four. Uh, subjective things, what's the fa- best flavor of ice cream, whether bald-headed, bearded men are the most attractive kinds of men, whatever you want to say, that those, those may be opinion-based things. They're subjective. Um, if there is no God, then we could always just say, says who? So you say, well, it's it's wrong to um, not allow women to to teach the same way as men in the church, or it's wrong to uh, have these views about um, uh, whatever issue he's brought up here. You know, these things are wrong. Says who? Says who they're wrong? Well, we just can see that as as a culture today, as a community, we can just see that it's wrong. Well, that's fine, but you realize that some cultures in the United States right now view uh, and, you know, in terms of their laws, view the buying and selling of marijuana for recreational purposes as okay. Other uh, communities, according to their laws, view the buying and selling of marijuana for recreational purposes as not okay. So it's still a matter of opinion. It's just a matter of opinion uh, of two different communities instead of two different individuals. It's always going to be a matter of opinion. And as a result, it's still subjective. Unless God exists, if God exists, then he makes sense of all those inclinations that you have. He makes sense of the objectivity of morality, and <clears throat> he serves as the ontological foundation for it. Without him, you, you can't get it. So you can wax eloquent about how you have this higher understanding of morality than the Bible, but you have no basis for it. The Bible, even though you disagree with it, has a basis for morality because it affirms theism. So another thing about this, when you say things like, well, you know, this is the greatest time to be alive because Christians are cherry picking this stuff. And, you know, we've arrived at a time now in culture where we can see that this or that or the other thing. Every culture believes that they're the best representation of morality. Every, every new generation that comes along thinks that they're morally superior to the previous generation. But that is such a temporally and geographically provincial way of looking at things. I mean, it's a bit narrow-minded. For example, there will probably be things that people like um, modern-day liberals will, 100 years from now, I can't believe people used to think X, and X will be something currently held by modern-day liberals, and they'll look like bigots for having held X, whereas 100 years from now, that will be the new thing. Uh, If you go 200 years back, what you're going to find is there would be people who would look forward at us today who want to kill children in the womb and then even now kill children after they're out of the womb and call that acceptable and even call it virtuous because of the rights of the woman, because of women's rights. People a couple hundred years ago would have thought that was barbaric. Uh, So this idea that we represent the highest moral value that currently where we are is the way people always think about the newest generation, the newest issues, uh, where we live geographically. It may be that we're just a little bit narrow-minded about that and a little bit provincial to where we live and when we live. And so that all needs to be considered. 
Um, and I think I can look at it with an ontological basis for morality. I can look at certain actions like that, and I can say, I don't care what secular humanism might say about that. I don't care what current laws may say about that. I can look at that and say, that's wrong. That's wrong. Um, let's keep going and see if he says anything else. Not the other way around. Let's go ahead and cue the hate comments, but otherwise in the comments below, do share with me any verses you think should be on maybe the next level. Okay, so, he, so he's wrapping up. I want to tell you, you're not going to get hate comments from me, Mr. Atheist. I, I hope that if you view this, that you, that I know you're going to disagree with me, right? And I know that some of the views that I hold you think are horrific, but I hope that you'll see that I try to be fair. I try to be reasonable. I try to be friendly and not respond to the person, but respond to the content. And um, I hope that for any atheist out there uh, and any Christians that you'll check out the messages by my pastor and one of our campus pastors there. Uh, check them out down there in the description, um, as well as our two episodes on slavery. Um, this is a tough episode. I get it. There is stuff in the Bible. That I think he's right. These are seven, I'll cut out terrible, seven Bible verses that Christians would rather skip. A lot of them would probably rather skip them. But if you understand the socio-cultural and historical setting, and you understand how the languages are used, and you're willing to do a little investigation, you'll find that some of what we've heard here I don't think is the best correct understanding of these passages. And second, it's not exactly like you thought it was. So uh, I encourage people to look deeper into these things. And listen, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.